All right, everybody, great to have you here with us. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles. You're going to need them today. Psalm chapter 37 is where we're going to start. If you've got a Bible on your smartphone or on your device, you're more than welcome to use that. We also have ushers passing out Bibles. And raise your hand, they'll come around, hook you up. You need to hear me on this, all right? We want you to have the Word of God in front of you today. If your MO is just to kind of normally come and sit and just listen, that's cool and everything, but we want to lovingly push you a little bit to get the Word of God in front of you because there's something way more powerful about reading it than just hearing somebody like me blab at you about it. It's way more personal when you get to see it for yourself. So raise your hand and they will get a Bible to you. In our Bibles, you're going to find Psalm 37 on page 466. My name's Chad Blackman. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelter Cove. If uh, this is your first time with us, you're a guest joining us, we are so glad to have you here. Thank you for taking time out of your weekend to join us. I want to give a shout out to those of you joining us online, our whole community there. Great to have you joining us also. You're catching us in the middle of a series right now. We're talking about faith in the fight. What we're doing is looking at the lives of men and women in the scriptures who faced unbelievable trials and yet demonstrated unbelievable faith in the midst of those trials. Today, we've got a great, great story, Daniel in the lion's den. And I'm very excited to share this with you. Before we get rolling, I just wanted to lay before you something. I wanted to talk about something that might kind of happen during our time. I wanna speak to those of you who know this story already. I wanna speak to those of you who've heard this before, you know the players, you kinda know the story. I wanna caution you against an attitude that can rise up in the heart. And the attitude goes like this. I already know this. I know the players, I know the people, I know the moral. You're not gonna tell me anything I don't already know. And I wanna caution you against that because really it's a proud attitude to carry in here. But secondly, it's a failure to understand how God's word works. And here's what I mean. The Bible itself describes the Bible as being living and active, meaning that the truth of the scriptures doesn't ever change. The truth doesn't change, but the way that truth bears its weight into our lives oftentimes looks differently. So yes, you may have heard this sermon, uh, you may have heard this text, you may have heard this before, but you are in a different season of life. And I suspect that the Lord might have something really cool in store for you today. So I challenge you to approach this with some fresh eyes. I challenge you to approach this with an open heart. And for those of you who don't know this story, you're newer to church, I've got such a great story for you today. You are gonna dig this story, okay? You may be wondering, okay, if it's Daniel, why the Psalms? Why are we starting off in the Psalms? Truth be told, uh, Daniel 6, I didn't know which passage to pick. And I figured, let's find a psalm that kind of encapsulates all of, of Daniel's life. And that's what Psalm 37 is. So would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We're going to pick it up in Psalm 37. And we will start in verse 37. Here's how my translation starts. Mark the blameless and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I pray for your blessing now over this time. Pray that you help me to teach this passage well. And I pray for my friends in here, God, that 
um, have come in here with heavy souls this morning. They have come in here very, very heavy laden. They are carrying a lot. I pray that you free them today and you give them rest and, and you would liberate in ways that only you can. I pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're a note taker, I want to draw your attention to the notes right now. The first opening point in your notes is going to say this. Once again, let's get the real story. Let's get the real story. And I say once again because I did this with Abraham a few weeks ago. What what I want to do is just kind of let Daniel's story open up in front of us. Sometimes we approach the scriptures and we read them like really, really quick. Just kind of get bullet points. And we miss experiencing. We miss slowing down and just kind of experiencing this man's story. So in your Bibles, turn over with me to Daniel chapter 6. If you're in one of our hardback black Bibles, you're going to find Daniel 6 on page 743. Um, I want to take some time to just kind of walk through Daniel's story here. Daniel was born 620 BC, 605, 15 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem and he uproots He uproots Daniel and his family along with thousands of other Jewish men and women, transports them to Babylon and enslaves them in Babylon. Daniel's a very bright man. He gets recruited by the king to help administrate this king's kingdom. So think about this. The very kingdom that conquered Daniel's land and family and friends, he now has to work for. He now has to advance this oppressive kingdom, a kingdom that stands for everything he's against, paganism, idolatry, immorality, self-indulgence. He now has to work for this kingdom. From Daniel chapter one to Daniel chapter six, about 65 years goes by. So when Daniel lands in Babylon, about 15 years old, up till chapter six, 65 years goes by. That means in Daniel six, he's about 80 years old about 80 years old. Pick this up with me, Daniel chapter six, verse one. We're just gonna kind of walk through this line by line. It pleased Darius. Okay, so let's stop right there. Darius is a Persian king. The Babylonians are now getting pushed out. The Persians are invading. This means Daniel, who's been under the Babylonian system for years, now has to learn a whole new system of government, new people, new institutions. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. A satrap is kind of like a congressman. They're like somebody that oversees a certain particular area. All right? 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the, other, all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. I love that description of him. Like this man's not described as a critical man, as a harsh man, as a self-righteous man, not as an angry man. He's described as having an excellent spirit. Church, God willing, may we be a people that are described like that that people would look at us and they would say there's something excellent about them. Not that they're a hypocritical, self-righteous group of people, but that we would would have something excellent to us. Love that. Middle of verse three, the king planned to set him, to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. 
So Darius would be kind of the face of the kingdom, but Daniel would be the one calling the shots. Daniel would be the real brains behind the whole operation. Verse four, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. See, once again, we just get this picture of Daniel's integrity. Like this is an incredibly um, hardworking, ethical man. He's a man of character. So these guys are upset that Daniel's second in command. They're upset that he's the one. So they try to plot and conspire against him and they look to his work. But Daniel's not cutting corners anywhere. He's not fudging the numbers and the budget. He's not uh, boosting the expense report to get some for himself. He's not cutting corners anywhere. He's faithful, serving this Persian empire, this Persian king, working hard as unto the Lord, not unto men. Verse five, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom. Okay, let's stop. That's a lie. That's a lie. Because who's not included in this? Daniel. Daniel's one of the high officials and they're, they're plotting and conspiring against him. So they've come to the king. They flatter him. Oh, king, live forever. All of us are in agreement that here's what you should do. Watch what they say. Verse seven, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So here's what they say to the king. King, you are awesome. You're so cool that you're borderline deity. And what you should do is make a law across the land that if anybody for 30 days prays to a God or a man other than you, they should die death by lions. Now, have you ever watched um, the, like the National Geographic channel or something? You see how lions hunt? What they do when they kill their prey is they pounce upon it, dig their claws into the body of the animal, and then they wrap their mouth around the throat of their prey. They crush the windpipe with their mighty jaws and strangle the animal to death. That's how somebody should die. If they pray to anyone other than you, Darius, and Darius is like, I guess I am pretty cool. I guess I am all right. We'll sign that into law. I think that's a good idea. And sure enough, that's what he does. Verse eight, now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it can be changed, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Verse 10, I want you to see what Daniel does. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. Now, why does the text say open toward Jerusalem? Why didn't it just say it's open towards the West? It could have very well said that, right? Why does it point out Jerusalem? Now, Daniel's how old at this point? 80 years old. He's been in Babylon for 65 years. He's learned their culture. He's learned their customs. 
and yet it seems like this Hebrew man has not forgotten his roots. Here's what I mean. There's a verse in the Bible, Psalm 137, verse 5. Psalm 137, 5 says, Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. Let my right hand no longer work if I forget you, Jerusalem. He remembered Solomon's dedication of the temple. Second Chronicles 6.21, where Solomon prays, Hear, Lord, hear the prayers of your servants and the prayers of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. So Daniel's windows open towards Jerusalem, been in Babylon for all these years, still faithfully following the scriptures. And you know what the kicker of it all is? Jerusalem's empty. They carried everybody out. There's nobody left. The temple got burned to the ground some decades earlier. It's a ghost town. And Daniel's still faithfully walking in the scriptures. Unreal. Now I want you to see what happens next. His upper chamber, the windows open towards Jerusalem, middle of verse 10. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So how's Daniel praying? If there was a law, let's be real. Let's just try to be real with each other. If there was a law that got put into place that forbids us to pray, Here's how I would be praying. Lord, smite those people in our government. Lord, strike them down. Like I would be very aggressively praying. But here's how Daniel's praying. He's giving thanks. That's what the text says. He's giving thanks. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the way that you've taken care of me for all these years. And Lord, this law has been signed into place. Would you help me be strong now? Lord, would you rescue me if that be your will? Lord, I will not stop praying to you. King Darius is just a man. I will not pray to him. And if so, if my life be taken from me, may I die faithfully walking with you. Verse 12. And they they being the satraps, they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes, anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah. Okay, they just played the race card right there. They did. They just said, Daniel, he's not even one of us. He's not even a Persian. He's not even a Mede. He's one of those lowly exiles from Judah. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now watch how Darius responds. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. Okay, that's crazy. There's never a moment in Darius's heart and mind where he goes, "Uh uh-oh, Daniel might be disloyal. It seems like Daniel's work ethic and loyalty never comes into question here. His character never comes into question. 
because Darius immediately realizes what these satraps have done. They've manipulated him. They've tricked him. He immediately realizes Daniel's trustworthy. You're the ones that are lying to me. You're the ones that have manipulated me. Middle of verse 14. He, King Darius, labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. When I was a kid, I pictured Daniel uh, in the lion's den as, as kind of like almost a jail cell, like a big cement kind of cell where there were all these lions. But if you read the text, it's much more like an actual cave. And there's a side entrance where they roll the stone over and they seal the stone shut. Very reminiscent of Jesus, very, very symbolic of Jesus in the tomb. This cave has an entrance at the top. We'll see that in a little bit. It's got an entrance at the top, and the way that they would put these people in, they'd lower them down through this hole. What time of the day is it when Daniel gets put into the lion's den? It says that the king labored till sundown. That means it's night. They march him out to this cave. At night, they then lower him in to a dark, pitch black cave. That means as Daniel's going down, he cannot see the lions anywhere, but he can hear them. He can hear them stalking the cave floor, their feet heavily stepping onto the ground. He can smell them, but he can't see them. How terrifying must this have been? King Darius goes back to his palace. He cannot sleep. He cannot eat. He refuses any entertainment for the night. The next morning comes, verse 19. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel gets lowered down into this thick, pitch black cave. His feet hit the ground, and he braces himself. His body is tense, knuckles turning white, ready for the lions to pounce. 
and a couple seconds go by and, and nothing's happening. And more time goes by and nothing's happening. And then he opens his eyes. And this pitch black cave is now a little bit more illuminated because someone else is in there. An angel of God most high who has come to shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel gets taken up out of the cave. This is how we know there's a hole at the top. No harm, not a scratch. Not a scratch. King Darius responds very aggressively. Here's what he does. Verse 24, the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. King Darius wants none of these malicious, wicked men to exist. He doesn't even want their families to exist. He wants no part of their family lineage in his kingdom. And he throws them into the lion. And the text says before they hit the ground, the lions pounce on them and break all their bones into pieces. That's a biblical way of saying they got thrashed. You ever seen a dog with like a stuffed animal just like go crazy with it? That's what happened. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. (laughs) Crack up at this. Peace be multiplied to you. I love that he says that because he just had people eaten alive by lions. And then he starts this going, peace, peace be to you. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, People are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. What an incredible story. I want to draw your attention to the notes now. If you're a note taker, um, I, I want to point you to the notes now. We're going to unpack just a few lessons, a couple of things that we can learn from this. Number one, number one, sometimes good people will be hated by a bad world. Now, if you're a theology brain, like you've come in here and you hear me use that phrase, good people, you're thinking, well, the Bible says there are nobody that's good. Like, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, you're right. You're right. But here's what I mean. What I mean is that those that follow Jesus, like those that try to walk in righteousness, they are going to be hated by the world. And Jesus explains it very clearly. He says, this is the verdict. Here's the deal. Lights come into the world But men love the darkness. We love the darkness because the light exposes the darkness. The light exposes who we really are. We like to live with our facade and our illusion that we're way better than we actually are. We don't like the light exposing us for what we really are. Sinners. Rebels. And so I don't want you to have the false expectation that living a righteous, godly life is going to make you friends with everybody. Sometimes living a godly life will mean you make people upset. 
Now, that doesn't mean we go out of our way to make people upset, all right? So don't start that fight at work you've been trying to start. Just breathe. But it means sometimes because we're following Jesus and not the world, people might not like us. We need to be okay with that. He's more important than the opinions of men. He's more important. Number two, in the face of persecution, trusting God is always the right choice. Always. Now, Daniel in his circumstances here had a very real second option. He could have played politics with these men. He could have stooped to their level. He could have dug up some dirt on them. He could have gone to these satraps and went, hey, I know about that affair nobody knows about. Hey, I know how you skimmed some money from the budget. Hey, I know about what you're doing. I know about your corruption. And he could have blackmailed them. But he didn't. He took the high road. And rather than stooping to their level, he goes before the Lord and he lays this before the Lord. He says, Lord, you're not surprised by this. You're not caught off guard that this law was signed into effect. Lord, I thank you for all that you are. And now I ask that you help me. Trusting God is always the right choice when persecution comes our way. But I want to be straight with you. Here's what it means. It means sometimes we're going to have to swallow our pride. It means sometimes we're going to have to bite our tongue and not snap back at that person at work. We have that great comeback we've just been waiting to use. It means we're going to have to hold that back. It means sometimes we're going to have to choose godliness over our own selfish wants. And it might be hard, but it's always the right choice, always. And what I want to do now is unpack some motivations to trust him because you may look at the life of Daniel and just be like, that guy was on another level. I just don't have that kind of trust. I want to unpack for you some things that, that Darius actually says, this pagan, idolatrous man. He's the guy who claimed that he was God himself, and he then writes these things about the one true God. And I just want to unpack these things now. What motivates us to trust the Lord? In your notes, uh, point A is going to say this. We can trust him because he is the living God. This is what Darius starts with. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel, he's the living God. So what does that, what does that really mean? When we say that he's the living God, what it means is that he can see, he can hear, he's active. So God has not just kind of wound up creation and got it started and he's busy rearranging heaven and just kind of letting us figure this whole thing out. He's not doing that. Jesus himself bears the title, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, when he goes back to heaven, says, I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, will remind you of what I've said. You are going to do incredible things through the power of the Spirit. He's alive. He's active. He's not a dead, stagnant God. So do you understand the gravity of this? Like when you pray, when we pray, our jumbled, confused, distracted prayers, as weak as they may be, God bends his ear. He listens. Chad, I'm right here. Chad, I love it when you talk to me. What's going on? He hears, he's active, he's not dead. Point B in your notes. He is the eternal God. 
Here's how Darius says this. He says, the God of Daniel is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. Can I just be straight up with you? Do you wanna know a real motivation in my heart to keep following God? I've read the end of the book. I've read Revelation. You're laughing, I'm not laughing. I've read it. And what I see is that Jesus is going to set up shop and it's never, ever, 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 ever going to end. He sets up his kingdom and it's going to endure forever. And look at me, he's going to demolish. He's going to demolish all wickedness, all evil. Here's the kind of demolishing I'm talking about. The Antichrist and all of his armies will march on Jerusalem to level the city of God. Jesus descends on the clouds in glory, robe dipped in blood, tattoo up the side of his leg, king of kings, lord of lords. With the sword of his mouth, he will slay by the millions. And then he calls all the birds of the air, gather together and gorge yourself on the flesh of mighty men. That's gangster. He demolishes. It's not a close battle. It's not he barely skates by. He comes down and he demolishes and he sets up his kingdom and it'll never end. And look at me on a real level here. His kingdom, we will be free. We will be free from sin. We'll be free from temptation. Can you imagine that? The addictions, the things that plague us, gone. How many times do we have to walk through somebody getting hurt, somebody getting sick, somebody dying, and we feel the devastation of that? That's gonna be gone. How many times do we have to feel the separation between us and God, feeling like he's far off and he's distant? We will see him face to face. We will look upon him. He'll be on a first name basis with us. And it'll never end. And real talk, I don't want to be on the losing team. I don't want to be outside of that. I want that. I want to be a part of that. And that motivates me to keep trusting him, that he's the eternal God and his kingdom will endure forever. Letters C and D I'm going to do together here. Letters C and D say this. He's the God who rescues and he's the God of miracles. And I want to unpack these now just carefully. I want to do this with um, some caution. Here's why. There are, there are pastors that mean very, very well. They have good intentions, but they say things that just aren't biblical. And here's what I mean. Um, they'll say things like when somebody gets sick, the diagnosis is cancer. And that person comes and they pour their heart out to the pastor and, and the pastor will say, you know what? I know God's gonna heal you. I just know he's gonna heal you. Or somebody loses a job and they say, hey, I know God's gonna give you a better job than this. And their intentions are good because they want to comfort and they want to help relieve some of the agony that they're in. But the Bible just doesn't make promises like that. So here's what we mean when we say God rescues. We mean that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That God rescues spiritually. That all who cry out to him will be saved from their sin. Now, does that mean we don't pray for healing? Of course not. We pray for it. Sometimes we get it. My brothers, my sisters, sometimes we don't. 
Sometimes we are appointed to be miraculously healed. Sometimes we are appointed to suffer and die. All are to the glory of God. Both are to the glory of his name. So I just want to protect you from false expectations that the Bible never even says. God always rescues spiritually. And here's how this rescue took place. Some 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ, he's the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully powerful, fully eternal, and yet he takes on human flesh. Like he gets tired, he gets sleepy, his feet hurt, um, he's got to eat, he has to rest, he cries, he laughs, he feels temptation. So the God of the universe totally understands what it's like to be human. He understands our weaknesses. He's felt them. He lives out the law perfectly. Not one failure, not one slip up. Perfect in action, thought, and deed. Absolutely perfect. And he looks upon his creation. He looks upon the men and women of his creation, seeing that they are enslaved and lost in sin. He makes a cosmic deal with the Father. This unbelievable deal with the Father. Father, I will trade my perfect standing to them. I will give them all my righteousness. Eternal, never-ending, completely sufficient righteousness. I'll give it to them if they take it. And in return, take out all your wrath, all your punishment, all the condemnation and guilt for their rebellion. You take it out on me. And so Jesus gets boom, boom, nailed up to the cross. And God pours out, pours out all of his wrath that should have been on us, empties it onto Jesus. And now for those that believe, Jesus freely gives over his righteousness, his perfect standing. So what that means is even when we fail, even when we come up short and we do something we know we shouldn't have done, We are still holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Past sin, present sin, future sin, all eternally covered by the eternal righteousness of Christ. I have zero righteousness of my own. Being a pastor doesn't get me righteousness. Reading the Bible doesn't get me righteousness. None of it works. Jesus has given to me his righteousness. It's by that alone that I have relationship with God. And the offer's on the table for all of us today. This is how he has rescued us. But there's another point here that he's the God of miracles. And I think because we're Westerners, sometimes we struggle with this. Like we've had science kind of just beat into us from an early age. We see weird things on TV, like like somebody's crying on TV. I saw Jesus, he showed up in my tortilla and I can't believe it. And like, we're just like, okay, do, do miracles really happen still? Like, is this even a real thing? And I want to just, I want to tell you about a miracle that, that never gets talked about, that never, ever gets mentioned in church. We like the big flashy, I was healed from cancer. We like that stuff. But I want to talk to you about a more subtle, quiet miracle that happens. I want to talk to you about the miracle of God changing the desires of our heart. So when we hear about this message of rescue, we say, yes, Jesus, rescue me. Give me your righteousness. Take from me all my guilt. Take it all. The Bible says the Holy Spirit of God indwells that person, begins to live inside that person. And the once hard, arrogant, defiant heart 
slowly gets massaged and slowly begins to soften up and begins to delight in the things of God and begins to feel repulsed by the things of the world, by the sin that used to be so enjoyable. And, and this was just so real in my life. Um, I had a season of my life, about seven years, where I just resented all things Christian, resented Jesus, resented the man. He felt like a perpetual guilt trip to me. Um, was addicted to porn, uh, smoked weed every single day, multiple times a day. It was how I coped with guilt. It was how I coped with anxiety, insecurity. Uh, it was really kind of my medication of choice to deal with a lot of the junk in my life. Um, and, and I feel like in many, many ways that Jesus just kind of plucked me up out of that circumstance and, and in many ways dropped me down onto solid ground. And I began, it was really at this church, hearing about how you don't fix you. Like Christianity is not self-help. It's, it's God help. Because hear me, I love you. I love you so much, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're the problem. You are the problem. You can't fix you because you're the issue. I'm the issue. And we need outside help. And so what the Holy Spirit of God does is he enters the soul of the believer and begins to massage it and work it into something soft and we begin to delight in him. The last point in your notes is, where do you need to trust God this week? Where do you need to trust him? I don't know where that looks, where that looks like, or, or what that's going to take shape. I'll say it like this. Maybe, maybe you need to lay your life down for the first time and say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you now. Would you join me? Let's bow and let's pray.